So there are so many different kinds of conflict and uh, sort of like messiness that we experience in our lives as you know queer folks and immigrant folks. And it it was it was hard, but it, I, I had to just sort of continue to tell myself to trust that that my life had drama in it and that I didn't have to manufacture drama that was uh, foreign to the kinds of drama that that are true to and important in my life. Hey, this is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm your host, Amber Castillo. Public Obscenities explores the pleasures and pitfalls of living in translation as it follows a queer studies PhD student returning to his family home in India with his Black American boyfriend. The bilingual play boldly navigates the complexities of identity, belonging, and expression. Today, playwright Shayak Misha Chowdhury talks to Epicenter founder and publisher S. Mitra Kalita to explore the layers of thought and emotion that shape public obscenities and why this three-hour performance is one you won't want to miss. Hi, Misha. Thank you for being with us. I'm truly honored. I, I loved your show. I just want to say that at the outset. So happy you got to see it. The area that I really wanted to spend some time talking to you about today, which I'm not sure um, if this is where you focused your interviews, but given my background of um, being from the northeast of India, not quite yeah. Bengal, but enough overlap that I emerged just wanting to ask you like 50 questions about the design of your set. Hmm. Has there been an evolution of the design of the set? Tell me about that. Yeah. So in the first iteration of the production at Soho Rep, um, I worked with um, Dots. They're an amazing scenic design collective. And uh, they were a real collaborator with me in sort of realizing this, you know, it, it, it's so inspired by my family's home in Kolkata. Um, so I had gone back to Kolkata and taken sort of copious videos and photos of all of the details inside of that home and shared it with the scenic designers. The second go around, I've been working with Peiyi Wong. She was the scenic designer on this iteration of the production. And this version of the piece lives inside a slightly different meta container where you're uh, the house is sort of embedded inside of this Kolkata movie theater proscenium. So that was a major shift because Soho Rep is such a intimate space. There was no proscenium. We were just sort of like in in the house with the yeah. with the actors. Um, yeah, but you know, it's about like bringing you know, like I was bringing suitcases uh, worth of stuff back from Calcutta, uh, having our electrician there sort of like custom make little wall outlets for us and gather vents from demolition sites that we embedded into the wall. And all of those little details, I think, really were important to me in making the environment that the the actors were operating inside of uh, feel as like true and lived in in terms of its granular detail, which is so much the ethos of the whole piece. Misha, before we move forward, tell me a little bit about your home in Golgotha. You were um, raised there before you came over here. For I was born. I was born in India, um, and I moved to the states when I was quite young. I was actually born in Tamil Nadu because my parents were working in the south. Um, at the time. So I never, I didn't, uh, I left India when I was, I think, two or three years old and moved to the States, moved to Massachusetts when I was five. But 
I spent every, you know, I spent a good part of my childhood moving back and forth between um, my family's home in Kolkata and here. Um, there have been years that I've spent back living in that house as an adult. Um, it's the house that has been my home for my sort of only single stable sort of like house that has been my house for my entire life. And it's a classic sort of like middle-class Bangali joint family home. There are all of my, it's my mom's family's home. Um, and so my grandmother used to live on the third floor. My mom's brother and her sister lived in the two flats on the second floor. My mom's older sister lives there now. So, you know, it's like a, a kind of like open door, um, porous family home. And it's like my happy place. It's where I spend, um, time whenever I it's it's where I sort of like long to return to and return to whenever I can beautiful that's really beautiful you know those of us in storytelling I think have really struggled over the last few years of how to weave in a multi-platform nature of our lives right and and I think about this a lot when we're like is this podcast or video or you know how do we weave in the reality of text messaging and and can you talk about that process in the writing of this play and also because it's evolving right before us, right? Like, does that affect your rendering of, for example, instant messaging as is depicted in these late night sessions with something that feels more, you know, universal and uh, timeless of daydreaming and reverie and, and, and yet that was a very layered part of your set as well. Tell me a little bit about how you wrote that in and think about that. I mean, I don't know that I thought about it in the way that you're asking specifically. I think there's, there's you know, everything that I was writing in the play was drawn from some kernel of truth um, that I had access to that felt true to my own sort of experience in life. And I think I've always sort of wondered what what my, you know, my uncle used to play virtual pool sitting at his computer there. And that is a, a language that I felt I had access to in terms of having communicated with my family members of that generation over the internet, whether that be through like, you know, just like through email or social media or WhatsApp, the vernacular that uh, they use when communicating via the internet um, over text has a particular quality to it and a flavor to it that I wanted to try and sort of find some integrity in. Um, but yeah, I mean, how to sort of animate those things in three dimensions um, in live theater is is really exciting to me. And I spent a lot of time with our video designer, Johnny Moreno, and thinking about how that text lived um, inside of the architecture of the home. Um, and, you know, even the really subtle things in like, you know, theater is this sort of like wild calibration of tiny, tiny choices, like the volume of how uh, when Pichet is typing, um, how, how we hear that typing sort of writ large in the space makes a huge difference in terms of how the audience is able to lean in and read that material. Um, when we didn't have that typing sound, the audience felt further away from it. So those are the kinds of choices that we're always sort of engaged in yeah. making. Yeah. 
So the actor Purna Jagannathan um, attended your show over the weekend. You're welcome. Yeah. I told her yeah. to, and, and somehow through divine intervention, she got there, which um, this is what she says. The play where an Indian man takes his black boyfriend home to Calcutta and the fact that he's gay and the boyfriend's black are not talked about at all. We've come far. And honestly, this realism is astonishing. Also on the genre of South Asian plays over, you know, I've sort of come of age, I'm 47 years old, you know, the, the New York city that I came of age in had a lot of, you know, kind of like a script of conflict with our parents. Totally. Out stories, the collision of interracial relationships, the going back home. I mean, and if I, if I have a certain tone, it's, they were all very necessary parts of of setting the stage for a show like yours. This decision to not make this a coming out story or a, oh my God, the boyfriend is black, like intentional, but also did you, did you second guess that in any way? I mean, I certainly second guessed it. I I mean, those choices come from the truth of my own life. And I certainly, when I was starting to write the piece, felt a kind of internal and external pressure to succumb to the sort of like pervasiveness of those narratives in the culture. And I was like, is it possible to write this play without their, without sort of conflict emerging from the facts of the you know, queer couples presence in this home. But it was important to me to, I wanted to be telling a story. um, And I think I've said a couple of times to folks, like what is rare about Chotun to me is not the fact that he's gay and the thing that he's grappling with in relationship to his family and to his home has less to do with his sexuality and more to do with the labor that he puts into sort of proving his nativeness um, and his the fluency that he's retained in his mother tongue, which puts him in this strange sort of like in-between space between generations, between uh, his family in Kolkata and his sort of like life as a Asian American or a person of color back in the U.S. And so once it became clear to me that the sort of like engine that was fueling this piece had more to do with like conflict that was emerging from the uh, a kind of like romanticizing of the um, romanticizing the homeland or sort of like projecting onto what what are the things that we uh, there are so many other kinds of struggles that we mm-hmm. are engaged in as queer folks and folks in interracial relationships uh, here as first and second generation people living between places. Um, I think that they're, you know, I think about, you know, uh, I love Sex Education, the TV show, and Eric's character in that that show has this moment where he, like, goes back to Nigeria and hooks up with, uh, like, a Nigerian guy for the first time, and and then he goes back to the UK and breaks up with his white boyfriend, and um, and we're always building on these sort of like prior stories, right? But even like, I'm like, I had that experience as a young person um, when I first sort of, when I was like dating somebody who spoke my mother tongue for the first time and what that meant, what that signified was so grand um, that I wasn't even able to sort of really see that person as a person. They just sort of represented a kind of homecoming for me. And so I wanted to sort of like, critique even that like 
I haven't seen stories that sort of like lean into that strangeness that Choton is sort of metabolizing in terms of meeting, you know, folks like Sho and Shebunti and Kolkata, queer and trans folks back in back back in the home country, um, who he imagines himself to be like or have affinity with, but that that affinity is fraught. And so there are so many different kinds of conflict and uh, sort of like messiness that we experience in our lives as, you know, queer folks and immigrant folks. And I just, it, it was, it was hard, but it, I, I had to just sort of continue to tell myself to trust that, that my life had drama in it and that I didn't have to manufacture drama that was uh, foreign to the kinds of drama that, that um, are true to and important in my life. Yeah. Ironically, that might be why it's found its audience. Like we get pulled in a lot when, especially like over the last year on Broadway, where shows, for example, have tried to diversify their audiences. And we've seen a number of closures. And there is this narrative of, oh, these types of shows don't work. Yeah. And that's really dangerous. But there's a part of what you just said, which is that it's almost the, you know, the universality of that struggle or that drama. Yeah versus the, you know, the focus on a coming out or the interracial relationship, which inherently focuses on separation, right? Or what makes us different. And so totally. And that universality of the audience, like, have you kind of sat there and thought, like, how is this dual language play striking a chord when they don't even know what is being said for the first few minutes, right? Those of us who do understand, it's like delicious that we understand. I mean, it was a question that, you know, again, it's like, I certainly, I I felt a kind of pressure um, to make a big deal in the dramaturgy of the play of its bilingualism. There was a time in which I felt that I needed to sort of structure the play around the fact that there were going to be people who were watching it um, with different levels of access and fluency in terms of language um, and that they were going to be that that audience members were going to be entering the the play from different vantage points based on their own particular language backgrounds but the reality is like it's uh, you know and I tried you know like it was like oh do I want Choton to be sort of like in direct address with the audience sort of like you know like there were all kinds of things that I was sort of uh, juggling as possibilities, but ultimately, I, I, what feels kind of radical is sort of its unradicalness. Like I was like, we experience this in film all the time. People watch Shotojitrai films with subtitles, and we trust that, like that kind of storytelling, and you know, like just uh, specific supertitling allows us to enter those worlds that aren't familiar to us, um, and that's a thing that hadn't seemed possible to me in theater until relatively recently. But I do think that that is the idiom that I'm trying to sort of like work in and bring to the theater, that kind of sort of patient, naturalistic, um, multilingual storytelling that like we allow for in film, but in theater, we feel like uh, we have to sort of massage or handhold the audience in particular ways. I'm going to wrap us up because I know I know you probably have to run. The title, Public Obscenities, inspiration for that? Where did it come yeah, from? Yeah, I mean, it, the title was there from the very beginning. Um, I wrote, when I was back on a Fulbright in Kolkata in 2009, 2010, I wrote a 
poem called Public Obscenities. Um, that And, you know, it comes from the um, law that's on the books in the Indian Penal Code that criminalizes any kind of, like, obscene behavior in public. Um, and so certainly that's the, like, explicit source from which the title is pulled when show describes sections 292 and 294 of the Indian Penal Code to Choton Ninsin 4. But the reason that it felt like a rich uh, title for the play, and there were times in which I tried to change the title, um, but it it sort of like removed the um, the frame from the play in a lot of ways, just sort of like how much what is obscene and what is public and what is private and what is, you know, like my aunt in Kolkata, she just lies down, like plops down onto the bed next to my partner and I while we're still naked under the sheet. And that's not like strange to her. And yet she won't use the same language for our relationship that that I might. Um, so all of those sort of like unexpected sort of like comforts and discomforts that emerge within these homes that are so porous, where the private and the public are just sort of like collapsed. Um, they just sort of like collapse into themselves. That is the kind of, that was of great interest to me. Um, the curtains and the screens and the what's happening behind that window there. So yeah, it felt like an apt title. You can see public obscenities at the Theater for a New Audience's Polanski Shakespeare Center in the heart of Fort Greene until February 25th. Click the link in our show notes for details and tickets. That's all for today. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. For more stories like this, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at epicenter-nyc.com. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Caravica. You can find more of their music on their website linked to in our podcast description.